really at a point now where you're talking about a crisis on a crisis on a crisis. Welcome to the Poverty Policy Podcast. This podcast is a production of the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, and I am Regina Reed, your host. On this podcast, we explore issues related to poverty and homelessness, along with the policy implications and solutions. For this episode, I am joined by Joey Lindstrom, who does field organizing at the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a leading national advocacy organization working on housing issues for people in poverty. We talk about housing, disaster response, and of course, we can't help but discuss the upcoming election and the impact of all of this for people living in poverty. This episode was recorded in early October 2020 in the midst of a rapidly changing environment. Keep that in mind as you're listening and look for the many resources mentioned in the show notes, including the bills and action alerts that Joey mentions. Let's get started. Joey, we're so glad to have you here. There's so much going on we need to talk about. So to start, can you please introduce yourself and tell us more about the organization you work for? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Joey Lindstrom. I'm the field director at the National Low Income Housing Coalition in D.C. Uh, I've been doing this for seven years uh, with NLIHC, and we are um, a policy and advocacy group uh, that works to ensure safe, decent, and affordable homes for everyone uh, throughout the country. We do this by um, producing a lot of really excellent research reports that can be effectively wielded by advocates throughout the country when making the case for uh, the need for more deeply affordable homes uh, in their communities. Um, and we also provide uh, work on Capitol Hill and opportunities for advocates throughout the country to um, add their voice to ongoing advocacy. And our job on the field team is to give people opportunities to participate in ways that are simple and digestible and, um, and easy to plug into. And so we've developed a lot of campaigns over the last few years. Uh, the National Housing Week of Action that happens every year in May or June is one of them. Uh, we've also developed the uh, Our Homes, Our Votes 2020 project to get more um, organizations interested in voter registration, voter education, and then mobilizing voters uh, in, in, in every election. Uh, and then we've worked hard to make sure that um, people can find easy ways to take action through the Legislative Action Center on our website. That's exactly what this podcast is about, is connecting people to the issues and to action opportunities. So that said, you have done a lot of work with us already in the past few weeks on elections and getting folks to the polls. I know you do a lot of great work with the Our Homes, Our Votes campaign. Yeah, the election is upcoming. I think at the time of this recording, we are 33 days out. And NLIHC has done a really robust effort in 2019 and 2020 to get uh, more housing organizations to participate. It's certainly true that the coronavirus pandemic uh, stalled some of our progress in um, April, May, June, July, but we've really ramped things up here over the last few months. But first, let me say we did some really effective work in 2019 engaging candidates for the presidency uh, in both parties, because our work, of course, is a nonpartisan effort. And we sought to have um, presidential candidates speak on the record about what they would do to solve America's homeless, homelessness crisis and housing affordability crisis. 
and we had some really good success. Uh, we got to a place where 18 of the 24 uh, presidential candidates on the Democratic side released some form of an affordable housing plan or a plan to end homelessness. And that really is unprecedented in major presidential politics. Uh, and we're really happy that many of those um, policy recommendations were very, very strong. Um, we also uh, hosted um, events where presidential candidates in Iowa or New Hampshire uh, did some um, visiting of affordable housing properties and then took questions from low-income renters or from advocates in the communities. And so we really got some good traction connecting with candidates and getting them to speak more um, more deliberately on housing than they had in the past. And I use that word deliberately because very often when you'd hear presidential candidates talk about housing, they would speak about you know, neighborhoods or home ownership or community development. In this case, they were speaking more specifically about the tremendous needs of people who are homeless. Uh, and in some cases, people who have housing needs after they uh, return from incarceration. We had some success also engaging um, the debate moderators in presidential debates. We got a, an affordable housing question asked at two different debates uh, that the candidates had a chance to respond to, uh, and that had never happened before. So we were really proud of that as well. What we're doing today is we are continuing to provide tools, information and resources to housing organizations throughout the country who are working to be sure that low-income renters have an opportunity to register to vote, know what they need to know to vote successfully, and then in the end, do so. We've done this in a couple of ways. Uh, we've provided a lot of templates, tips, and best practices um, on our website, which is www.ourhomes-rvotes.org. Uh, there's also state-by-state -state information about, uh, in each state, what you need to know about voting and uh, which websites you would go to to register to vote and so forth. Uh, we've also invited local and uh, state organizations to become affiliates of Our Homes, Our Votes. And what this really does for us, is it allows us to know how many people throughout the country are really using our resources in their state and local work. And it allows us to um, spotlight local and state efforts that provide an example for what others might do. What we've really found is that there are a lot of housing organizations that realize they should have more of a voice in the election and that they should work to address the voter turnout disparities between renters and homeowners or low-income households and high-income households. Um, what we hope that Our Homes, Our Votes is doing right now is drawing a common thread between these many very local efforts so that people feel less isolated in their work and can more fully appreciate that they're part of a, of a growing movement and a crescendo within our, uh, our industry of housing and homelessness uh, uh, advocates and providers, um, but then also just within the movement for social justice. I want to spend just a brief moment talking about uh, something really encouraging we've been working on, which is the Housing Providers Council of Our Homes, Our Votes, through which we've had success um, bringing in uh, housing providers of all different types, you know, public housing agencies, nonprofit housing providers, for-profit housing providers, and as a coalition, they represent more than a half a million uh, subsidized rental homes. And these housing providers are at work to be sure that their residents are registered to vote and that they have options for voting early or voting on election day. And it's really been great to see the partnership between the landlord and the renter on making sure that barriers to voting are overcome and addressed.
the a lot of the resources you mentioned, your housing provider network group and the tools and actions you have on your website, there is a lot of overlap with with many of our folks and our healthcare community for those action opportunities. And so we we share those regularly. I will share that in the show notes. Something to take from what you just said and an action for anybody listening, presumably within a month of the election, it's to educate yourself on candidate platforms on affordable housing. If that's an ask we have for people listening, we can direct them to your website to help do that. It's a moment where right now, while they're in battle uh, on the campaign field, you'll find that many candidates are more open to learning than they will be once they actually assume office. Uh, And so I think sending out candidate information sheets uh, or candidate questionnaires will be really helpful. We're, we're getting a little late in the calendar for the candidate mm-hmm. questionnaires, but the information sheets will, will always be a really helpful guide and we encourage people to uh, to distribute those as well. That's great. I'll, I'll link to all that in the show notes. Moving on, even though we, we could talk about this some more, um, I want to ask you about natural disasters. Uh, right now, there are fires ravaging the West Coast. We still have, I believe, a month or two left of hurricane season. There are obvious implications of natural disasters on people living in poverty. From the healthcare perspective, this is an issue on infectious disease control, um, exacerbating health inequities, and on and on and on. Can you talk more about NLIHC's role in disaster and housing recovery? So the National Low-Income Housing Coalition has been working on the housing aspects of recovery on national disasters going as far back as Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and, and perhaps even before, uh, my awareness goes, goes as far back as Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Um, I will say that for our recent work, it really ramped up in 20, uh, I believe it was 2016 or 2017, 2017, uh, after Hurricane Maria really devastated Puerto Rico and so forth. And it was at that time that we started to bring together the various organizations who are interested in policy solutions um, and interested in learning more about what the realities are for low-income people uh, after a disaster. And so the Disaster Housing Recovery Coalition is an excellent um, platform for us to bring together advocates to uh, share ideas and to implement advocacy actions that relate to disaster recovery. Um, The Disaster Housing Recovery Coalition is in many ways staffed by all of us at NLIHC. It's particularly led by um, my colleague Noah Patton and uh, Sarah Sadian, our Vice President for Policy. Um, One of the things that I really want to draw people's attention to is that there is a natural imbalance in the way our country addresses disasters that very much plays out uh, as it relates to housing. Because so much of our disaster recovery is related to restoring to people what they lost, right? And as that relates to property, Um, homeowners, business owners, property owners, um, generally it's easy to quantify the value of what they lost. But if you were a renter and you didn't own your home, um, indeed, what needs to be done to restore what you lost if you didn't own it? This is even more tragically true for people who are homeless, where restoring them to their prior status is is something for um, federal agencies to simply shrug off in many cases. Now, it's not quite that bad in in some cases, but there's a general um, 
philosophical break for how we think about um, bringing people to the same level of stability, security, and indeed comfort or way of life that they had prior to being devastated uh, by a natural disaster. So there are several things we work on that relate to um, the equitable uh, policies and practices of FEMA and HUD uh, when they administer aid uh, after a, a significant natural disaster. You've probably heard us talk a lot about the disaster housing assistance program, which was very uh, effectively used after Hurricane Katrina, as well as after Superstorm Sandy or Hurricane Sandy as it's sometimes called, um, but was never used uh, at all after Hurricane Maria and has never been deployed by the Trump administration. There's particular um, legislation in Congress that we're eager to see passed as it relates to equitable disaster recovery. Uh, I'd like for, for you and your listeners to know about the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act of 2019. This is bipartisan legislation introduced by Representatives Al Green, a Democrat of Texas, and Ann Wagner, a Republican of Missouri. Um, and recently, uh, just on uh, July 26th, uh, Senators Brian Schatz of Hawaii, a Democrat, and Todd Young of Indiana, a Republican, uh, introduced companion legislation. This is important legislation because it, um, it brings together more coordination of, um, of various uh, agencies within the federal government that have community development aspects uh, of their mission. And it specifically helps to ensure um, that the federal government's long-term disaster recovery program, uh, better known as the Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Grants, um, or CDBGDR program, are better suited to serve the lowest income survivors of these disasters in a given community. So there are a lot of uh, critical reforms that are included in that bill. Um, and it also, uh, in the Senate bill, allows HUD to provide housing assistance uh, to people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness uh, who are not receiving housing assistance from FEMA. So it gives HUD um, that flexibility so that they don't have to wait for FEMA clearance to do um, the necessary work. So um, this is a really important bill, and I hope that uh, your full membership will reach out to their uh, members of Congress and talk to them about the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act of 19. Uh, we have on our website uh, a fact sheet about the bill that I can send to you for uh, some follow-up notes uh, when you post this, uh, this podcast as well. Something I love about NLIHC is that you, you really do create easily functioning action alert and portals where folks can go and if they just have a few minutes can take action. So I will share that in the show notes. A follow-up question for you. You mentioned the philosophical divide. How do we push back against this philosophical disagreement? Aside from the, you know, passing a bill for, to give funding, like how do we fight back on that? Well, I think you know, I think the um, the philosophical disagreements really are um, are born of antiquated concepts of American life, where you know um, people predominantly were homeowners and so forth, and that there was ample rental housing, where if a renter was displaced, they could just go find a new apartment rather simply. Um, and so, I think the the key things for us are to really emphasize the realities of crucial rental housing shortages and the realities of um, 
unsheltered homelessness in so much of America. So if we look at the wildfires that have recently happened in Oregon uh, and the tremendous number of people who were displaced and evacuated, these are people who in some cases are currently not just looking for a guest room, but you know they need to find a new apartment, a new place to live their life. And what we learn is that when rental housing is scarce, that just compounds the, the real tragic realities of um, what happens to renters after these disasters. So I think some of the ways that we're making progress philosophically with uh, decision makers and with members of Congress is by continuing to, um, to beat the drum on the chronic lack of affordable options for low-income renters throughout, the, throughout America. And these problems, of course, are then exacerbated by any disaster that leads to evacuation and displacement. We might have to do a whole other episode on eviction and how that how that's connected. Do you want to comment on the relationship to the eviction crisis, disasters, the state of current affairs? A pre-commentary for another episode we'll have in the future. Well, I mean, I think when you talk about the eviction crisis, when you talk about a natural disaster, when you talk about homelessness, when you talk about COVID-19 you're really at a point now where you're talking about a crisis on a crisis on a crisis, right? And so whether you focus on any individual one of those things, you know, it's impossible to fix in a context where there are so many other um, badly broken um, institutions and aspects of infrastructure. So for example, if we're in a situation where we don't have enough um, housing that's affordable for low-income renters, then we have a lot of people who are homeless. And then as we have a homelessness crisis, if we don't provide enough emergency shelter for people who are homeless, they're living outside. And then when there's a massive wildfire that dramatically decreases the, um, the, the air quality that people are breathing into their lungs, we now have to find, you know, how can we take these people who are living outside where they shouldn't be living outside and get them into a shelter, which they also shouldn't be in because they should have their own affordable rental homes. How do we do that? Well, we have to put them into a shelter, which is its own risk now because we don't wanna cram people indoors during a pandemic, right? And so there's a cascade of dominoes that really fall on one another when we don't have housing stability and affordability for everyone in the United States. And so, there's a very natural and obvious intersection between all of these overlapping crises. And we will be best served when we establish for everyone who is extremely low income in America, uh, housing entitlement, whether that's through an entitlement to a housing choice voucher or dramatic expansion of public housing throughout America, or making sure that we invest enough in the National Housing Trust Fund, that there are um, enough subsidized properties uh, throughout the United States. We will always be in a precarious position where a hurricane or a pandemic or, um, or uh, an increase or spike in evictions uh, or massive unemployment due to a recession can, uh, can topple things even further than they've, already, than they've already fallen. So we really need to find ourselves to a place of a better stasis of affordability and stability for uh, extremely low-income rental households. So you mentioned at the beginning that it's your job to create opportunities for people to advocate. What would you say today to someone who says, I'm really worried about natural disasters, the impact they're having on people experiencing homelessness, people already living in extreme poverty? So first, let me say that when you hear 
uh, someone in my position in Washington, D.C. talk about a bill, um, talking to your members of Congress about that bill really actually does make a difference. This is an actual good thing in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, we can have the most brilliant policy minds uh, talking about policy solutions, and we have that. We can have the best data analysts putting together really advanced um, research tools, and we have that. But members of Congress don't care about what we have to say. They care about what their constituents have to say. And I would hope that anyone listening to this understands that when we get 11 people to send an email to a congressional office about a specific bill, we get a phone call from these congressional offices asking for more information as they're trying to figure out how they should best take a position. It is absolutely true that members of Congress care a lot about what they hear from their constituents. Um, so I already shared with you the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act of 2019. This is a really important piece of legislation. I hope you'll all reach out to your members of Congress on that. We've also been eagerly in support of the housing elements of the here, excuse me, the HEROES Act, which many of you have heard about. The HEROES Act is a bill for the next coronavirus spending package. It passed by the House of Representatives many, many, many months ago, but the Senate has not taken action on it or any other spending package on the coronavirus. The um, HEROES Act includes a lot of really important um, aspects uh, in terms of housing solutions, including $100 billion for emergency rental assistance, and this is important, not just for the renters who are finding themselves behind in their payments as a result of the pandemic and the resulting recession. It's also important for the landlords who are trying to avoid foreclosure because they have their own bills to pay. And so receiving some rental assistance can create, create stability for the overall rental housing market. We also are pushing for $11.5 billion in emergency solutions grant money to support the work of uh, homeless service providers in creating uh, isolated spaces to allow for people to not be uh, crowded and congregants in their shelter experience. Uh, so in addition to those things, the HEROES Act also included an eviction moratorium that would be comprehensive and nationwide for all renters. And you might be thinking, hey, doesn't that already exist? Don't we already have an eviction moratorium? Haven't I heard about that? And indeed, the, the Centers for Disease Control did enact an eviction moratorium, and it was a very important and very positive step to protecting renters. But it doesn't last as long as the eviction moratorium in the HEROES Act. And um, the CDC moratorium requires uh, renters to fill out a, declar a declarative statement in order to be protected by that moratorium, whereas the moratorium in the HEROES Act uh, does uh, nothing of that of that kind. Um, I also want to draw people's attention to the federal budget. Uh, you know, we have to pass a budget every year, and that budget largely determines um, HUD funding as well as um, other funding going into um, into the next year related to housing under the USDA programs uh, and other programs. Uh, under Health and Human Services and so forth. Um, I'll additionally share with you the importance of Senate Bill 3529. Uh, this has been introduced by Senators Amy Klobuchar and Ron Wyden. It's called the Natural Disaster and Emergency Ballot Act. Uh, if passed this year, which of course is unlikely, it wouldn't be implemented in time for the 2020 election, but it includes important um, electoral changes like guaranteeing uh, that voters in all states have the right to request an absentee ballot. Uh, and that there are 20 days of early voting available in all states. Uh, this is a really important piece of legislation. 
outside of this, you know, prior to the uh, prior to the pandemic, we found ourselves really working on some important pieces of legislation like the American Housing and Economic Mobility Act introduced in the Senate by Senator Elizabeth Warren and in the House by Representative Cedric Richmond. That is a bill that provides a lot of money for the National Housing Trust Fund and also provides um, with some home ownership assistance in communities that were historically impacted by redlining and also a significant amount of money to uh, address tribal housing needs, which are severe in many parts of the United States. Uh, we were also working uh, really hard on the Rent Relief Act, which establishes a refundable uh, renter's tax credit that helps renters who are cost burdened re recover some of the money that they paid in rent that was uh, beyond what would be affordable to them. And then I also uh, would call people's attention to the Fair Housing Improvement Act. Uh, introduced by Senator Tim Kaine, which is a really important bill that would add things like uh, protection to people who receive housing choice vouchers from discrimination by landlords. And, and so this would allow for um, new protected classes to um, be covered under uh, the Fair Housing Act, uh, such as voucher holders and veterans and so forth. That is but a mere, you know, sampler of the many bills that uh, are currently being uh, discussed in Congress and surely will be reintroduced when a new Congress convenes in 2021. Um, it's never a bad time to tell your members of Congress about your positions on a bill. Um, reach out by email. If you'd like to reach out directly to the staff people who cover housing or budget, reach out to uh, myself or any of the other organizers at the National Low Income Housing Coalition, and we can tell you, you know, who that staff person is, and you can kind of direct your your um, your feedback and your advocacy more precisely. Happy to do that all the time. So much good information. To close out, we ask every podcast guest to share something they're hopeful about. You know, I'm I'm really hopeful because I see a couple of things. Number one, all of this energy around elections that I talked about earlier and all of the housing organizations who are having more of a, a political mindset than they have ever had in the past. Uh, we also, you know, I just gave you a small sample of pieces of legislation in Congress right now. Um, but there are so many excellent bills working to address housing solutions. And that hasn't always been the case. We haven't always had so many members of Congress trying to figure out what their new solution proposal will be. Uh, so we've got a lot of really great ideas being advanced. Um, and I think we also have right now, really great partnership of organizations working on housing solutions. Um, instead of battling over which idea is the best one, um, coming together to really fight for a better position for housing solutions overall. Uh, and that gives me hope. Uh, but finally, I think what really gives me hope is seeing, for example, on the emergency um, rental, the Emergency Rental Assistance and Rental Market Stabilization Act, you know, we were trying to get every Democrat in the House and Senate on that bill. And, and we've really seen a, an incredible crescendo of support, not because of our incredible work, but because of the ways members of Congress respond when they're getting calls and emails from their constituents, right? As long as it's true that our elected representatives still have interest in what people in their districts care about, um, there's still a chance for us to, to really make some impactful policy change. That's so good to hear. Thank you so much for being here and for interviewing with me. Happy to.